I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Genesis. Um, if you need help finding your way to Genesis, I uh, found neat, this neat trick. Um, open your Bibles halfway, close them, and just open to the beginning, and you'll be there. A little bit of humor to start us off. All right, let's talk about Bass Pro. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, I'm sure all of you in this room have been to Bass Pro, and if not, let's go. I will take you there. Just buy me some popcorn, okay, when we're there. That's fine. But Bass Pro, okay? And I'm, I'm sure you know that uh, they have this big, big aquarium now. We've been there a few times. And when you walk into the second room of the aquarium, you know, you get in, you know, you give them all your money, and then you get in, you have the first room and the second room. There's probably one of the most interesting rooms in the entire aquarium is that second room. Because what happens is you walk into this room with this large glass window, and what you see are hundreds, if not thousands of fish swimming in circles. And that's what these fish do night and day. Swim in a big, big Now I want to talk to you about Beetlejuice. Not the weird character, okay? Uh, there's a weird guy named Beetlejuice. I don't necessarily suggest looking him up, but you can if you want. Uh, no, there's a star called Beetlejuice. And if you're familiar with Orion, right, Orion's belt, Beetlejuice is the head, right? Beetlejuice is 724 light years away. To put that into perspective, light... You turn on the light bulb. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Per second. And that means that light travels 6 trillion miles in a year. All right? Now let's think about a trillion, right? Because we're like, oh yeah, a million, billion, trillion. Easy peasy. All right. A million seconds from now is 11 days from now. 11 and a half days. It's a million seconds. A billion seconds is 32 years. A trillion seconds, 32,000 years. All right, that's to help us put a trillion into perspective. So if light travels 6 trillion miles per year, then it takes 724 years for Betelgeuse's light to reach Earth. If you do the math, that means Betelgeuse is 4.3 quadrillion miles away from earth okay you want to know how far away a quadrillion seconds is like seconds quadrillion seconds is 32 million years and beetlejuice is four of those away from earth in miles just this past year scientists noticed that the light from beetlejuice has dimmed significantly uh, and this means that it's nearing the end of its life and that it's going to become a supernova. But the light that we're seeing now and the dimming that we're seeing now happened 724 years ago. Which means Betelgeuse entered its last stage of life when Genghis Khan was entering China. Right now, you step outside, you look at the sun, you look at light, it takes eight minutes for that light to reach sun, earth. If you're on Jupiter, okay, it takes that same light 45 minutes. 
if you lined up our sun back to back to back to back, right, to get to Jupiter, it would take over 1,000 of our suns to get to Jupiter. If Betelgeuse were our sun, it would overtake the entire orbit of Jupiter and almost reach Saturn. And Betelgeuse is far from the biggest star that we've ever discovered. So, what's a school of fish swimming in circles night and day in the Bass Pro Aquarium got to do with a massive sun that is 724 light years away? Worship. The fish and the sun alike are servants that point to an infinite glory. A God who is behind everything. And the book of Genesis boldly and without shame says, here is this God. The God behind that school of fish. The God behind Betelgeuse and a billion other stars like it and more massive than it. Here is this God. This is His creation. Here is this creation's purpose and here is where this creation is going here is the beginning of everything so look at your bibles with me this morning and you can follow on the screen we're going to be reading the first two verses of genesis here genesis 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here in these two verses, we are introduced to four major themes. And these four major themes, right, this is the beginning of our series in Genesis. Okay, And these four major themes not only give us an outline for Genesis, but they also give us an outline for the rest of Scripture. So because of that, because these themes are so important and so major, I'm going to do two things today. My first, as always, is exposition, right? I want to teach the text as, as much as I'm able to without distorting it, without changing it, without twisting it, right? My normal aim is to take what the text says and teach what it says. But because this is so massive and because... This is kind of a springboard. I'm using it as an introduction. Which means I'm going to have to do a little bit more than exposition. Okay, I'm going to have to bring in theology and a lot of the rest of Scripture right, to help explain and give us a good introduction for the rest of Genesis. In other words, what I teach today isn't contained just to these verses, but from many different places. Theology and other places in Scripture. And the first major theme that we're introduced, introduced to is this. The preeminence of God. Verse 1. In the beginning, God. These are some of the most theologically charged words in history. Why? Because of what they say over against other accounts of the universe and creation. 
In fact, these first two chapters in Genesis, right over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see they're not only an explanation of how things came to be, but also an argument against all the other ancient Near East cultures at the time. So, for example, let me give you an example of a famous creation account from the Babylonians. Uh, and it was, uh, it's called Enuma Elish. Elish. Enuma Elish. Anyway, uh, Enuma Elish tells the story of this god, Marduk. And he and this other god, Tiamat, go to war. Well, he ends up having victory over Tiamat. He splits her body into two. And she, part of her becomes the earth and part of her becomes the heavens. And, and then they create these humans because after this great battle, the gods are just tired and they need someone to do all the work. So they create humans to shoulder the gods' burden so that the gods can rest. But here comes Genesis in the midst of that and says, there are not multiple gods. And there is no great cosmic struggle. There is one supreme God overall who is majestic and glorious and by his nature rules over all because he is creator of all. This God is independent of all other created beings and all other would-be gods bow before his might and his power. Get into this over the next chapter, over the, over chapter one. But all of these things that God creates are what people have worshipped throughout history. And Genesis says, "No, no, no. There is a God who created all of these." This means there is no truer distinction in the universe than Creator and creation. He is Creator. All else is created. He is not served by any. Nobody gives to Him. Nobody adds to Him. And nobody teaches Him. He is not one of many. He stands alone. Paul wrote in Romans 11, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given God advice on how to do something? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? And this is an important distinction too because he's not only creator, but he's also sovereign. A lot of the founding fathers believed in a deistic God that, that created everything but just kind of let go and let things run its course. No, no. God is not just creator, he's sovereign. God actively carries and sustains all operations within his creation. Stephen Holmes wrote it like this. Gravity... And indeed, the preservation of all bodies in existence, moment by moment, is nothing other than an immediate action of God. The so-called laws of nature are merely descriptions of God's usual ways of acting. So the apple falls not just because God designed gravity to do that, but because God is willing gravity to do that. Making gravity to do that. The, the earth is orbiting the sun because God is actively causing it to orbit on its axis. The wind is blowing because God is actively causing it to blow at its speed and its direction. And when God stops, the wind stops. You're drawing breath 
right now because God is willing oxygen molecules into lungs that he is also willing to contract and to relax. God is sovereign and active in his creation. In fact, the very reason that anything exists at all is because it is in the conscious mind of Almighty God. You exist right now because God is conscious of you. Jonathan Edwards wrote, and this is kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. I demand in what respect this world has a being but only in the divine consciousness. Certainly in no respect apart from it. There would be figures and magnitudes and motions and proportions, but where? Where else but in the Almighty's knowledge? The same applies to colors and sounds and temperatures. All existence is only in being perceived by God. Material things are objective. They are other than one another because God knows them to be so. Because that is how God thinks of them. And his faithfulness is the only guarantor of that. The creation exists through being known and loved by God. In other words, this podium exists the way that it is because God is conscious of it existing like this. This right here exists the way it does. Someone built this, yes, but God is conscious of it being like this. Genesis is unapologetic. Before there was a beginning, there was God. God is supreme. God is over all. God is sovereign. This God executes judgment over false gods and over people who reject His rule. This God is infinite. This God is preeminent. Now the story I'm about to tell you kind of uh, actually really silly in comparison to all that. Well, Mallory and I had a nativity set up in our house for Christmas, okay? And, and of course, we're trying to teach Willa about baby Jesus and what Christmas is about. And she's really good at spotting baby Jesus. In fact, we've lost him a couple of times because she loves to play with him and he ends up under the couch and that kind of thing. We find him, oh, you found baby Jesus. Yeah, we did. So I moved this nativity set uh, one day, and Mary fell off. She broke her hand. Uh, Willa saw, and I fixed it, put some super glue on her. She's all good. Her hand's back. Uh, So anyway, yeah, Willa saw the whole thing. And so a a week or so later, Willa's just kind of looking at the nativity scene, and I'm standing there, and she says, Daddy, you broke God. No, no, no. (laughs) That's, That's Mary. And then she, she's looking at baby Jesus. Is that God? I mean, you, you know. Let's, let's talk about, uh, uh, like, yes, that is God, but that's not God? Gee, yeah, she'll learn, right? You know, like, so, uh, the, the, uh, we'll teach her, right? Easy stuff for a two-year-old to learn, right? About Jesus being God, but this little figurine is a depiction of Jesus. She'll learn. She'll learn that the purpose of the nativity is to show us something and to teach us. In other words, the nativity points to a higher reality. And this is the second major theme Genesis introduces us to, the purpose of creation. 
In verse 1 again we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's just like we said, God is creator, everything else is creation. But if it's true that God was before all things and is independent of everything, then it's also true that He didn't need us. He didn't need creation to make Him happy or to make Him whole or to make Him complete. God wasn't lacking something and decided He needed to create. Psalm 50 says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. No, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need creation. So we need to ask, why? Why did God create? First and foremost, God created all things for His glory. But He achieves that by establishing a kingdom. A kingdom of glory for the fame of His own name. And the reason that we know this to be true is because of the climax of creation. The climax of creation is not when He creates light. It's not when He created Beetlejuice and all the stars. It's not when He created plants and trees and fish. But... Humans. The climax of creation is when God created people who were made in His image to go and display His glory. He created them with the purpose to exercise dominion. He made a kingdom. It's the same idea as having church stickers put on your car, the Jesus fish. Yeah, we don't have church stickers here to put on our cars because guess what? You're a crazy driver and someone sees that church sticker, they're going to say, that guy belongs to a ridiculous church, a ridiculous kingdom, right? Especially people with Jesus fish. They always seem to have uh, be bad drivers. I don't know if any of you have Jesus fish here, but anyway. They know what kingdom you're a part of. And, and, and based on your driving, right, whether that kingdom is good or bad. God made a kingdom of people for the display of His glory, right? The the intent being that humans would display His goodness and His grace and His love. When Abraham, right, since this is an introduction to Genesis, uh, I'll use some examples. Uh, Abraham goes to war in Genesis 14 against kings. He's fulfilling a kingly role. He's a kingdom, right, going to war. God makes Israel into a kingdom. And now with the coming of Christ, the church is the new kingdom. So, so God's goal in creation is to create kingdom. And the way that God establishes His kingdom, in fact, the only way He does it is through covenant. This is a big, big, big idea in Scripture and in Genesis. God covenants with creation, as we'll learn. In the next few chapters, he covenants with Noah after the flood. He makes a covenant with Abraham, famously, uh, with Israel, with David. So the purpose of creation is kingdom through covenant. And, and, And a covenant is not a contract. Because contracts happen all the time. 
I take my car to Toyota to get it fixed. The contract being, you fix, I pay. Covenants do have obligations, right? Just like contracts. Contracts have obligation. Your obligation is to fix my car. My obligation is to pay for it. Covenants also have obligations, but covenants come with relationship. So when I get my car fixed, I pay Earl the mechanic. I don't kiss Earl the mechanic. The, the clearest human example we have of covenant is marriage, right? There are obligations for sure. But a relationship of love and trust and loyalty is established. Alistair Wilson wrote that, At its most basic, covenant presents God's desire to enter into a relationship with men and women created in His image. Covenant is all about relationship between the Creator and His creation. That's covenant. God desiring relationship with His creation and especially His image-bearing creatures. So, we're not just designed to be a kingdom of rulers, but in a kingdom of relationship. A, a relationship of loyalty and love and trust exercising dominion over this vast creation through a flourishing relationship with the Creator. That's the purpose of creation. But like I said, covenants have obligations for both parties involved. A marriage won't work if it's one person who keeps it and another one who always breaks it. Right? This is why Mallory knows I need my own pizza because it's just not going to work if she keeps trying to sabotage my pie. Right? This, this, this obligation that we have is to make sure I'm happy with my pizza. One thing that we will learn very quickly in Genesis is that humans are famously good at sabotaging. Famously good at failing to keep their end of the covenants. And here we are introduced to the third theme the presence of darkness. Humans always fail to keep the covenants because of the presence of darkness. If you've been a Christian for very long, you're probably so familiar with these verses that you can memorize them, right, just from hearing them repeated over and over again. But, but we're introduced to a really, really, really strange reality in verse 2. Formless void darkness. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. I want to explore these words and, and how they're used in Scripture. And especially that word void and, and that kind of that word pair, form and void, because it's only used in two other places in Scripture. And in both places it's used, both describe judgment. So Jeremiah 4.23, he wrote, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty and he goes on to say i looked and the fruitful land was a desert all its towns lay in ruins before the lord before his fierce anger so it's in a it's in a passage about judgment and, and then isaiah 34 11 uses the same language god will stretch out over edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation it's that same word that's used in in genesis 1 so not only do we have this like Really crazy judgment language here, but there is darkness. 
I'm, before I studied this, I never understood why God creates light, but darkness is there. Because darkness in Scripture is always bad. Darkness invariably symbolizes sin and, and death. Right? What was one of the ten plagues of Egypt? When God judges Pharaoh on Egypt, one of the ten plagues is complete darkness. And, and if you're a good Jew reading this, and none of this language rings any bells, we read that the darkness was over the face of the deep. The sea. The ocean. In other words, the agent of chaos and destruction. This same language is used to describe the flood. Genesis 6 says, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And, and, and this same language is exemplified by Jonah when he's in the belly of the fish. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The, the deep surrounded me. Right, So, so the deep, the, the sea waters all describe chaos and destruction. It's like Saigon, a Saigon moment. Right, We've heard a lot about Saigon probably in the last year. Right? You think of Saigon, you think disaster. It's exactly how the word deep and sea and water functions in Hebrew thought. It, I'll tell you one thing, it doesn't mean anything good. <laughs> so why in the world are judgment, death, and chaos present at the beginning of creation? I want to quote Alan Ross here. Genesis gives no explanation of the chaos. But we may gather from the words used in parallel passages that creation was a judgment on rebellion, that Satan was somehow involved, and that oppressive evil existed instead of the fullness of life. In fact, over the course of next week and everything, the six days of creation are actually ways of dispelling darkness and chaos. They're, they're an answer against. But let's suffice it to say that, that Genesis at this point hints, and only hints, that this darkness foreshadows the serpent and the fall that's to come in Genesis 3. That's the purpose. We don't know anything else about what's happening here except that it's foreshadowing. It foreshadows the cursing that comes with the fall, and the many times we see curses happen and function in the rest of the Old Testament. And do we really need to walk through all the evidence of darkness in Genesis in the Old Testament? We have the fall in Genesis 3, the curse brought about by rebellion. Cain immediately murders Abel. One of Cain's descendants boasts about murdering somebody. Evil floods the world, so God must flood the world in judgment. Noah, our supposed Savior, gets drunk immediately after. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery as a mercy instead of killing him. The Israelites chase after other gods. And the result is always judgment. Right? Humans can't help but do this. It's like rooting for your favorite college football team. They can't help but disappoint you. Unless you're an Alabama fan, in which case that itself is evidence of darkness too. They can't help but disappoint you. And the same thing, humans can't help 
but, but live in the darkness and sin and, and cause judgment. So the presence of darkness creates massive tension in the storyline of Scripture and human history. Which was why we need our last major theme, the promise of blessing. We close out verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If the presence of darkness foreshadows the fall, then the presence of the Spirit foreshadows blessing. We see this precisely because that Spirit is an agent of life. The Spirit is it's how God gives life. It's through His Spirit. So, to quote Alan Ross again, the unformed, lifeless mass of the watery earth was under the care of the Divine Spirit who hovered over it, ensuring its future development. So the Spirit breathes life into creation. It's the same idea that we'll see in Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, a living being. Psalm 104.30 says of the Spirit, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. In, in Exodus, the craftsmen who build the ark, they're equipped, what, with the Spirit to be able to do this because, because the tabernacle, which is a garden, like a garden, they're equipped to construct this garden to give it life. In, G, in John 20, you want another evidence of this? Jesus breathes on His disciples after he's, He rose from the dead in the same way that God breathes on Adam to give them life. Saying, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so the Spirit is how God breathes life into His creatures. And it is the presence of the Spirit that ensures life in the same way He ensures blessing. Later in Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve and He blessed them. God promises Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. Throughout Genesis, we see the sons securing the blessing of their father, which means life and flourishing. Obedience to the Mosaic law comes with blessing. Even in Genesis 3, in the midst of this curse and the fall, God promises the blessing of a, uh, of a future seed who will defeat the serpent. And thus, the whole of Scripture is map mapped out for us. How can God bless a stubbornly, sinfully, sinful people who continuously violate His covenant? How can God dwell among a people to bless them when by their sin they can only bring curse? How will blessing ever come to God's kingdom when sin is present in their very beings? It is when the preeminent Creator takes on flesh to become like His creatures. It is when the purpose of creation is taken up by the Creator Himself to do what His creatures can't. It's when the presence of darkness is defeated by the Prince of Peace. It's when the promise of blessing is ultimately fulfilled by and found in Jesus Christ. No human could ever secure blessing. 
No human ever upheld their end of the covenant. We can only secure curse. We needed someone to come on our behalf who could fully and finally undo the curse and secure blessing on our behalf. Jesus did that. Jesus undid the curse for you. Undid the curse over you. And He secured blessing for you. Not blessings like God's going to give me everything I want, but the blessing of eternal life with God the Father. All it takes is to receive Christ by faith. You can't secure God's blessing. You can only secure curse. And the only thing that you need is to receive Christ by faith who justifies freely all who call on on Him. And that's what Genesis is about. The preeminence of God, the purpose of creation, the presence of darkness, and the promise of blessing all being fulfilled by Christ. Our Creator God becoming like His creatures to do what His creatures cannot. Praise God. That He not only upheld His end of the covenant, but upholds ours as well. Let's pray. Father God, all of us in this room are Adam. We can be put in a garden. Everything with our heart's desire, immediate relationship with You, and all of us would fall. All of us would choose disobedience and curse. But instead of giving us what we rightly deserve, what we chose, You set Your affection upon us. Time after time, we failed to keep our promises, to keep our covenant, and time and time again we earned Your judgment, but You came to live the life that we could not live. In perfect righteousness and holiness and obedience. The last Adam who obeyed You to the very end died in our place taking the curse, our curse of sin upon Himself. We praise You God for Your grace. That You are the Creator God who gave life to creation by Your Spirit and You give new life to Your creatures through Your Spirit in Jesus. So Father, help us by Your power, by Your grace, by Christ to be the kingdom that You created us to be. For Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.